This morning we're going to talk about possibilities. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark as we start introducing this idea. And we'll spend all our time in Mark this morning as we explore it. I want to start with a quote from J.B. Capel. He points out that optimists and pessimists have at least one thing in common. Here's what he says. The optimist proclaims that we live in the best of all possible worlds, and the pessimist fears this is true. And I like that quote because he shows that people react to possibilities differently. Some see possibilities as an advantage, and others see possibilities as a disadvantage. Uh, sometimes the attitude depends on what's possible. Uh, it's like the old joke about the guy who goes to the girl he's interested in and he says, what are the chances of a guy like me and a girl like you getting together? And he's, he takes a stab at it. He guesses. He says, is it one in a hundred? And she says, it's more like one in a million. And he says, so you're saying there's a chance. You know, the possibility for him was a very positive thing. Now, what the would-be suitor failed to take into account was the character of the one holding the possibilities. You see, he was thinking about what was feasibly possible. But if he had considered the character of the one who had all the control in that situation, he would know that there was really not a chance that he would be able to go out with her. Yes, there was a feasible possibility, but when you take into account the one who is in control of the possibilities, there was no possibility. We're going to study faith in three texts in the book of Mark this morning, which speak of possibilities. In Mark chapter 9, we're going to read about a poor father with a demon-possessed son who comes to Jesus and asks for healing. In Mark chapter 10, we're going to talk about a young man who comes to Jesus with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then we're going to turn over to Mark chapter 14, and we're going to look at possibilities in the Garden of Gethsemane. In all three of these, we're going to find encouragement to believe in possibilities, not because of the possibilities themselves, but because of the one who holds the possibilities in his hand. And so let's start with that first text, Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 14 and following, where we read about a believer's unbelief. Now this poor father, he brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus, and they're in this hopeless situation. You see, this child has been possessed with this evil spirit, and it's caused him to foam at the mouth. It's made him mute. He cannot speak. It will cause him to throw himself into the water or into fire. He goes into convulsions. The man is just in a desperate situation. And so he goes to Jesus' disciples for help, but they can't do anything about it. And so at his wit's end, he comes to Jesus. And in verse 22, he asks this question. If you can do anything, in other words, if it's possible, have compassion on us and help us. Now that draws a gentle rebuke from Jesus, who responds to the man this way. He says, if you can, 
All things are possible with one who believes. Now let's think about this. Jesus is talking about here something, for lack of a better term, I would call intrinsic possibilities. Intrinsic possibilities are those things that are possible because of God's unlimited capacity. When we talk about intrinsic possibilities, he's talking about what God can do. And you know, God is omnipotent. He can do everything. And and so Jesus is talking about that when he says to the man, throwing his words back into his face, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Because God is omnipotent, he can do anything. He wasn't, however, talking about moral possibilities. Okay, the difference between intrinsic possibilities and moral possibilities is intrinsic possibilities are about what God can do, but moral possibilities are about what God will do. What he will do. This is different, for example, from Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, where he says all things are possible. In Matthew 17, 20, he's speaking to the apostles and he says there, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. And he was speaking to the apostles there and he was talking about different possibilities with them than there were with this man with the demon possessed son. And the reason there were differences there is not because God's power was at a certain level with the apostles and at a different level with the the man with the demon-possessed son. It's because of God's will here. It's about a moral possibility. Another example, what if the man said, Jesus, I want you to cast this demon out from my son and into these scribes who have been giving me such a terrible time about my son. I want vengeance on these scribes by inflicting them with the problem that has been inflicting my son. And Jesus would not have done that. Why? Not because it was impossible with God for that kind of thing to happen. God could do that, but God wouldn't do that kind of thing because it goes against his moral will. It wasn't morally possible while it was intrinsically possible. What about all the sick people who make legitimate appeals to God and never receive the healing that they ask for? Is it because God can't heal? Well, we know that he can. We know that he could heal anyone, but at some point he doesn't because it's his will for us all to pass from this life through the portal of death until Jesus comes back. Jesus didn't tell the man that all things would be done for the one who believes, but that all things are possible. He was saying that all things were intrinsically possible with God, although they may not be morally possible. This suggests for us a definition of faith. I want you to think about this. What is faith? And you hear all kinds of of definitions. Uh, Sometimes it's simplified with faith is belief. Uh, Hebrews 11.1 we know says faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And that, of course, is the inspired definition of faith. And it's looking at one aspect of faith. Here's another look at it in terms of possibilities. Faith is not knowing what God will do, but knowing he can do anything. 
Faith is not knowing his moral will, not knowing the moral possibilities, not knowing what God will do. But faith is believing in intrinsic possibilities, knowing that he can do anything. Faith dawned on the poor father's soul, and so he cries, I believe. And then with a sudden awareness of the hollowness and and the limited nature of his faith, he cries, help my unbelief. He says he has belief and unbelief at the same time. He has faith and he has doubts. Is this man confused? Perhaps. But is he uncommon? Not at all. You see, it's very natural, very common, whenever you have true faith to realize how insufficient that faith really is in and of yourself. It's really not until you start to believe that you can measure your doubts. And so all believers have their doubts. All believers understand what they're walking into, the the wild world of possibilities that they're daring to enter into. And, And so he's really starting to believe in Jesus when he stops and he says, I'm about to ask a man to cast this demon out of my son and make him well. How dare I do such a thing? You see when he really started to believe in the possibilities, that's when he was able to measure his doubt. And it's okay that his, his faith was weak because of where he placed it. You see, he wasn't placing it in himself. He was placing it in, in Christ. He was placing it in God. So the true power of faith is not in the strength of the one who believes, but in the strength of the one in whom he believes. Not in the strength of the subject of faith, but in the strength of the object of faith. And that is why this boy was healed. It was possible, and God willed it, and so it happened. That's the first example we want to look at this morning. Let's go to the second example, next chapter. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. A familiar story, the story of the rich young ruler, as we often call him. This young man, he he runs up to Jesus, Mark says, and he kneels down. So he's showing respect and submission to, to Jesus. And he has a question. And his question is, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gives him three responses. Here's the first response. The first response is in verses 17 and 18. Why do you call me good No one is good except God alone. In Matthew's account, he says, what good deed must I do? But the response is the same, only God is good. In both cases, Jesus is saying, what's good, only God is good. Now, he can only mean one of two things. Number one, he could mean, I am not good. Or the only other possibility is that he is saying, I am God. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. He can only mean I'm I'm not good or I'm God. And we know what he meant. It's subtle, but he's implying he's God. And so he was. 
He was good, and he was God. Another thought about that interesting exchange. He needed this young man to understand the connection between God and good because without that kind of connection, without any context, goodness is meaningless. It's like the common statement that we say in funerals all the time, he was a good man. Well, what does that mean? What did he do that was good? What kind of qualities did he have that was good? Until you put God as the standard for goodness, Goodness is absolutely meaningless. This young man needed to be confronted with the goodness of God to understand his own words and what he was saying to Jesus. This isn't just something you use to manipulate people. Good teacher. Goodness has a meaning and it's connected to God. And the last thing that he's trying to get across to him, and the most important thing for this, for this lesson, is that he wanted him to understand that without God's help, no one can be good. Only God is good. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. This is what Jesus is saying. You can't be good unless you have God. He knew what was in this young man's heart and he knew that he thought he was good enough already and he just wanted Jesus to tell him so. And so we come to Jesus' second response. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Secondly, he says, keep the commandments. He gives some examples from the Ten Commandments. And the young man responds that he had been keeping those since childhood. And then Jesus' third response comes where he gets to the heart of the matter. It was his third response that made this encounter memorable. And you can read it. In verse 21, then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And Mark tells us that the young man was disheartened and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, why was he condemned? Why did he go away? Because he was rich? No. Not because he was rich. Nothing wrong with being rich. There's nothing wrong with being poor. Being poor does not make you a good person. Being rich doesn't make you a good person. He went away sorrowful because he was too connected to his wealth and not connected at all to God. And you can't be good without God's help. This brings us to the subject of possibilities again. The disciples are having a really hard time with this. And so, they, Jesus turns to them and he says this in verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you open up some commentaries or you look down in the notes of your study Bible... Or maybe you've heard this in uh, Bible classes before. There, there are a lot of interesting explanations about Jesus' words here. Nobody wants to believe, and the disciples were this way, nobody wants to believe that he's speaking literally here. They'll say, well, the gates in Jerusalem were very narrow. And if your camel was loaded down, in order to get through the gate, you'd have to unpack 
your camel, get all the things off of it, and your camel would have to hold its breath, and you could push him through maybe to get your camel through, and you have to load him back up. It, it was hard, but it wasn't impossible. And then another explanation is that I've read that the, the Aramaic word for camel sounds like the Aramaic word for twine, and they sound just close enough that Jesus is doing a little word play here, and he's saying it's like trying to put twine through the, the eye of a needle. If you, if you put it in your mouth and you, you, you pull on it a little bit, make it as small as you can, and you have a steady hand, which I don't have, so this is really an impossibility for me. You put it through that eye of the needle, then it, it's possible it's just really hard. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's talking about camels, and he's talking about needles, and he's telling the disciples that it's impossible for a rich man to go to heaven. Now, why is he saying that? Because you know what? It is impossible for you to go to heaven in the same sense. Because what he means by rich man is that man that just deserted Jesus for his wealth. And what he's saying is it's impossible for anybody to be good but God. It is impossible for you to get to heaven on your own righteousness. Wealth can't buy you a ticket into heaven. Good deeds can't buy your way into heaven. If you're trying to get there without God's help, it's like a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. It's just not possible. And the disciples reacted the same, same way you would. Verse 27, then who can be saved? And that's when Jesus reminded them of possibilities. In verse 28, with man, it is impossible. With man, it is a camel through the eye of a needle. But with God, all things are possible. All things are possible with God. He was trying to get his disciples to understand something that we all need to understand. We can't go to heaven on our own merit. We can't go to heaven without God's help. We need him. We need the one with whom all things are possible. Let's go to Mark 14. This takes us to the Garden of Gethsemane on the evening of Jesus' arrest. We know his prayers, but have you thought about them in terms of the possibilities? By the way, this young ruler was unwilling to make God the center of his life. He was too connected to his wealth. So in Mark 10, we saw that he went away sorrowful. Now that word translated sorrowful is the same word that, that Matthew uses... This isn't in Mark, but in Matthew's account, he uses to describe Jesus' emotions in the Garden of Gethsemane. Same word, same problem. Here's how they're connected. The rich man was sorrowful because he was faced with the prospect of the core of his identity being stripped from him. In his case, his wealth. In the Garden, Jesus was sorrowful because he was also faced with being stripped of his core identity, but with him it was his connection to his father. He was anticipating the cross where he'd bear the sins of humanity. And so in Mark 14, verse 35, 
he says this. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Mark doesn't give us a direct quote here in verse 35, but we know it from Matthew 27, 30, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 26, 39. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now remember the, the father with the demon-possessed boy? If you can do anything, help us. And now Jesus is saying, if it be possible. And with the demon-possessed boy, Jesus threw the Father's words back in his face. You remember that? If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes in God. But now the one who, who rebuked a man for that is saying, if it be possible in the Garden of Gethsemane. What's going on here? Is Jesus not as strong as we thought he was? I think we all know that's, that's not what's true. What's really happening is two different kinds of possibilities are being weighed. This is why I wanted to distinguish them so much in the first point. The father of the poor, boy, the demon-possessed boy, was talking about intrinsic possibilities. If it's possible in any way that God is strong enough to cast out demons, help us. And Jesus is saying there's nothing under heaven, above heaven, that God cannot do. He can do anything. He was talking about intrinsic possibilities. But in the garden, Jesus is praying about moral possibility. What God would do. You see? And he's saying, if there is a way, God, if there is a way, Father, that you can save mankind without my going to the cross, give me that way. Let this cup pass from me. But then, of course, he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's the next verse in Mark. Verse 36, Abba, Father, Dear Father, all things are possible for you. So we know he believed in intrinsic possibilities. If it be possible, all things are possible. God could do it, but then the next verse, remove this cup, past, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He knew his Father could do anything. All things are possible with the omnipotent God. What was uncertain was what God would do, or rather, that it could be changed. We encounter the same thing when we read that it's impossible for God to lie. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. What is all this talk about the omnipotent God and all things are possible with God, and then the Bible itself says something is impossible for God? Well, don't mistake intrinsic possibilities with moral possibilities. It's intrinsically possible for God to form words with his mouth that go against something that he said earlier. It's possible for God to be powerful enough to tell a lie, but he's not going to do it because he's righteous. He's infinitely righteous. 
He is completely righteous and he will never deny himself. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie. Now lying is possible for us because our character is imperfect. Our righteousness is flawed. And so we tell lies all the time. It's both intrinsically possible and morally possible for a human being to lie, but not God. While it may be theoretically, theoretically possible, he's never going to do it. He is, as Paul says in Titus 1-2, the never-lying God. In the same way, God was not forced to put his son on that cross. He didn't have to do it. He could allow us to remain condemned. We could all suffer eternal punishment. But it was his will to make it impossible for Christ to avoid the cross. And it was Jesus' will to give, his, to give himself over to the Father and to die for you and me. Here's where this lesson comes home. Here's how it can be helpful to you. One day you may be in your garden of Gethsemane. And, and it, things just, they may just seem impossible. Maybe you're facing an illness or some kind of relational issue. Or a person you care deeply about is, is just so lost or you feel so alone, you don't know what to do, you don't know how to make a decision, you don't, you don't know how to make ends meet, whatever it is. All of us get in those places. In your garden, when you're on your knees in prayer, think of the possibilities. Know that intrinsically all things are possible for the one who believes. God can do anything. All things are possible with God. That doesn't mean he will do everything. He won't. He has a will. And you don't always know what it is. But here's the bright spot. Because it's God, you can have peace. Because it's God who holds the intrinsic possibilities and the moral impossibilities, you can live with that. Because you know his love, and you know his mercy, and you know he always does what is best. The next time you're in the garden, think of possibilities. Are you struggling? Maybe you feel like the poor father whose son was afflicted, and there seemed to be nowhere to turn. Maybe you feel empty and hollow like the young ruler. You've done everything right, but you just, something's hollow inside of you. Maybe you're burdened by the weight of responsibility on your shoulders, knowing impossible tasks lie ahead, and you know you can't do it on your own. What do you do? Think of possibilities. With God, all things are possible. There's always hope. And that doesn't mean you know your prayer will be answered in the affirmative. It doesn't mean you know what's around the corner. But it means that the one who loves you will do what is best, and nothing will get in his way. Nothing can separate you from that love. 
You know, the greatest problem is sin. And Christ is the answer. Maybe your sins are great. All of our sins. The first one condemns. And so in that sense, there's no difference between your sin and mine. We've all sinned. But some people feel like their sin is too great for God to forgive. Friend, all things are possible with God. In this case, the intrinsic and moral possibilities line up. And God showed that to you by sending Jesus to die on the cross. And so why are you waiting? Why won't you become a Christian today? Why won't you believe in Jesus? Put your faith in Him and trust Him with your life. Repenting of your sins, confessing He's the Son of God and being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And Christian, if you've done that and you, you've fallen away, you can come back. He wants you back. It is possible to be right with God again. If only you will believe. If only you will come right now as we stand together and as we sing.